Uh, we also are blessed today in another way, besides having Jordan with us and Nikki, uh, we have another uh, young man, I would call him a young man, uh, who is, uh, grew up in our church, who's going to share with us in a message. For a couple of years, I've been trying to get uh, one of our guys, we call them Timothys uh, out of the Bible, people who grow up uh, in the church, who come to uh, know the Lord uh, and then commit their life to ministry. And so one of our guys, uh, he is a big guy, you're going to see in a moment, Eric Roseberry, and uh, Eric is uh, back with us today. We love him, and uh, would you welcome him? I'll let him tell you a little bit more about himself. Tell us where you are, man. All right. It is good to be with you this morning, Journey. We're going to be in Hebrews 12, uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn there. While you're turning there, um, yeah, many of you may not know this, and things have changed a lot, but it's hard to overestimate the influence that Journey had in my life. Uh, in particular, those junior and senior high years helping me develop my faith, encouraging me to think about ministry. Uh, in my office uh, at the house every day when I sit down over my desk is my ordination certificate from here with Randy's name and the name of the elders who ordained me into ministry. Uh, and some of you may have been around for this. 13 years ago, we planted a church, uh, City of God Church in West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, when we did not have uh, a lot of partners helping us in that work, your giving um, helped us launch a church that is reaching um, uh, a campus, uh, Purdue University, about five minutes from our house and reaching the greater Lafayette area. Uh, and so you have played probably a more significant role in my life than you've realized. So uh, thank you for that. And honestly, as a, a pastor who's been in ministry for 17, 18 years now, uh, it's always been encouraging. And I hope you know the gift that this is to have someone like Randy, uh, who has been here for many years, uh, who is finishing well as a, a minister, and I can't tell you uh, how desperately us young ministers need the examples of guys like Randy. So Randy, thank you for serving so faithfully. Yeah. All right, well, we'll get going this morning. I'm gonna read our text today, Hebrews 12. We're gonna pick up in verse 18, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll get going. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. I'm going to pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this morning and our time together. I pray over the next few minutes that as we open your word, you might speak to us and that you would show us the confidence that we can have in our relationship with you, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Give us that ability to rest in the finished work of Christ. Give us the ability to find peace and joy in the finished work of Christ. And I pray that the recognition of what Jesus has done for us would transform the way that we think about life and we think about our relationship with you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. 
All right, well, as we're going to jump into this, uh, one of the things, if you ever have the opportunity to visit our church, is my wife and I are very open and honest with our church about our uh, relationship. And about this time a year ago, there was a long-standing disagreement my wife and I had that was resolved. And not surprisingly, it involved me going to her and telling her I was wrong about something, which seems to happen often. But as I said, we're about five minutes from Purdue University. Most of our date nights, we like to go on campus and grab dinner. And for about a year, every time we would go and grab dinner on campus, she would ask the same thing on our way into dinner and as we left dinner. One of the biggest uh, things that's changed in the last few years around Purdue University is now everywhere you look on every sidewalk in front of every business are these electric scooters everywhere that you can just have an app on your phone, you unlock it, you can ride around campus and get to class and stuff, but people also just ride around to enjoy town. And so every date we would go on, she would ask over and over, can we ride scooters after dinner tonight? And for a year, my answer was no. For two reasons. One, um, you probably can tell I don't exactly have the body composition of someone comfortable on anything on wheels. It just never works for me. And so when there's that far to fall off of something that's also going about 15 to 20 miles an hour, I wanted no part of it. And so I said no over and over again. But more than that, or I guess alongside of that, um, the thing working against her was I'm not exactly what you would call a thrill-seeking person. And the fact that I'm calling an electric scooter that goes 15 miles an hour a thrill ride should give you some idea of my disposition toward these things. But one night, for whatever reason, she had asked and asked, and I finally agreed for five minutes, one time, we can ride scooters, we'll play Russian roulette with our lives, my parents can take the kids if they need to, and we'll go and do this after dinner one night. And then we did, and there was a few seconds where I was trying to figure it out, and I'd push off, and I'd hit the accelerator, and we'd stop, and she was just kind of waiting for me to try and figure this out, and it was all terrifying, and then all of a sudden, it just clicked, and I became one with the scooter in a moment. (laughs) And we spent, no joke, the next 45 minutes, it was a bill I wasn't expecting at the end of it, but the next 45 minutes riding all over campus, visiting parts of campus we had never seen, just riding together, stopping, taking pictures, and it was one of the most enjoyable things I had experienced, and I had to admit to her at the end of the night, there was this thing I was convinced I was going to hate, and I had told myself I was going to hate for years, but I actually loved it. Now, some of you are wondering, Hebrews 12, this story, where are we going here? Here's the connection. I think for most of us, there's probably a handful of things we can look back in life on and say, there was something I was convinced I wasn't going to like, something I was convinced wasn't for me, and then yet when I experienced it, it was better than anything I could have imagined. I wonder how many of us do that with God. Because as I think about people's relationship with God and my own relationship with God, I think there's a lot of people I talk to in ministry who are just convinced that a relationship with God is not for them or that a spiritual life is not for them. They're not spiritual people. They're not religious people. They're not particularly holy. And they get this idea in their minds, and admittedly, it's an idea I had in my mind from time to time, that I'm just not the kind of person that can be close to God. 
Or maybe some of you are here today and you tried to get serious about your relationship with God in the past, but for whatever reason, it didn't quite give you what you were looking for. The experience wasn't what you were expecting. And so as you think about life with God, your thought is this, I'm glad other people find joy in their relationship with God, but it just doesn't seem like it's something for me. Because maybe you look around and you see Christians who have a lot of joy and happiness and peace, and there's something that life with Jesus gives them on the inside that just quite frankly, as you tried to experience life with Jesus, wasn't what you were getting out of that relationship. And maybe you felt like there was some deficiency in you keeping you from experiencing life with God. Again, maybe you're convinced that God is something you don't want or something you don't need, or for some reason, if there is a God, maybe he is someone who doesn't want anything to do with someone like you and someone like me. And it's this issue, I think, that gets to the heart of what we read here in Hebrews chapter 12. Because in this section of Scripture, the author of Hebrews really is contrasting two ways of approaching God. We see the first way that people conceive of approaching God in verses 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg no further messages to be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And to help describe people's experience with God, the author of Hebrews looks back to, and if you're familiar with this story, you'll hear the overtones here, when God met his people on Mount Sinai after he led them out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And they come to this mountain to encounter God after he has delivered them. And as the author of Hebrews looks back on this encounter, look at the descriptions that he uses here of the ways that people encountered God. When he talks about God meeting the people on the mountain, Moses having this face-to-face encounter with God, the words that he uses here to describe that encounter largely center around fear. It was a terrifying thing for the people to be in the presence of God. It doesn't provide this description in Hebrews, a very appealing image of being in the presence of God. And one of the things that this description makes clear is that while Israel was the people of God in the book of Exodus, there's still some measure of separation between the people and God. That God appeared to, this on the, appeared to them on the mountain, but they're told if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. You can't get too close to God here in the book of Exodus. What's clear from this description is that there's a distinction between God and human beings, and we see this throughout the Bible, that on their own, humans are only allowed to get so close to the presence of God. And again, we see this in this passage here. This encounter with God was so intense that even Moses, who we're told in the Old Testament is a friend of God, encounters the presence of God, and he confesses, I tremble with fear in the presence of God. Again, what are we to make of this description of the people encountering God? Or even if that is how we're called to encounter God, who would want to be in the presence of a a God who inspires fear like this? Again, in Deuteronomy, Moses specifies that his particular fear in encountering God 
comes from his worry over the wrath and judgment of God because already in the book of Exodus, even after the people had been led out of Egypt, they had already disobeyed the commands of God. And Moses is fearful. If we have disobeyed the commands of God, then we are under his judgment. Now let's stop here for a second because my guess is when some of you think about God, this is the image of God that you have in mind. This is what you conceive of God to be like. He's distant. He keeps us at arm's length. He's a judge. He only lets us get so close. And if there is a God like that, like the one described here, maybe he is a God to fear. Again, even if you haven't thought that deeply about your conception of God in the past, for many, I think this is what God feels like. He's something just out of reach that I can't get close to. And quite frankly, if there is a God and this is what he's like, why would I want something to do with him and why would he want something to do with me? Again, when we think about if there's a God in the universe, what would he think about me? And we allow ourselves to think about that. Typically, that's a question that can inspire some measure of guilt, of shame, of sadness, because in our honest moments, when it's not just the persona that we put on for the people around us, we know how far we are from what God wants for our lives, all of us, myself included. When we think about what's in our hearts and our minds, the things that people don't see, we know how out of step our lives are with God's desire for us in Scripture. And so for many, there's this nagging guilt and shame that comes along with thinking about a relationship with God. And beyond that, as for many, as they conceive of God in this way, God becomes like in their mind a boss constantly making impossible demands of us that we can't keep up with. He's this judge constantly looking to punish us. And there are elements of this description of God that are a caricature, and they're not biblical pictures of God. But there are elements of this description of God that we just read about in Hebrews that are accurate, because one of the most consistent messages in Scripture is this, that God is holy, that God is perfect, and that all human beings have disobeyed him, they've rebelled against him, and because of our sin against God, we will face judgment at the end of this life. One of the clearest expressions of this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where the Apostle Paul reminds us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul puts himself in that category and says, all of us, every human being who has ever lived left to themselves finds themselves in this place, that we are by nature children of wrath. Why? Because we've disobeyed God, we've rebelled against God, and we rightly stand under the judgment of God justly. And this is humanity's problem. That if there's a question the Bible's trying to answer, it's this question. How can sinful people get back into a relationship with the holy God? How can God bridge that gap? How can we get back to God given that we have separated ourselves from him? 
And so as the Israelites come to this realization, we have disobeyed God, we have sinned against God, God's judgment is rightly on us. They have to make a decision. How do we fix this relationship? And the answer they come to is an answer that many of us come to. If my relationship with God is broken, the way that I'll fix it is this. I'll just try really, really hard to get on God's good side. And if I can just do enough good things, then God will be pleased with me. Then I'll be on the right side of the the judgment line. And I'm not saying this is how God told his people to fix their relationship with him. But this is just a natural human impulse. If my relationship with God is not good, I'll just do enough good things to make sure God is pleased with me. If God's angry with me, I'll just work really hard to get on his good side. This fixes most other relationships we have in this life or most other problems we have in this life. If you're a student and your grade starts to suffer, you can work really hard to get your grade up. If you're in a relationship and the relationship is suffering, you can do things for that other person to help them see how important they are to you or you can do things to try and restore what's gotten broken in that relationship. If you're not getting where you want to be at work, you can put in more hours, you can stay late, you can do the work that no one else wants to do. And in most other situations in our lives, by putting in enough time and enough effort and enough discipline, we can fix what's wrong in our lives. And so it's only natural that we would bring that mindset into our relationship with God. If I can solve every other problem in my life by gutting it out, surely I can solve the God problem this way. And so as long as I'm at church and as long as I'm in a small group and I'm giving and I'm serving and I'm reading my Bible, as long as I do enough of that stuff, surely I can fix my broken relationship with God. And when we're doing good at the religious stuff, and I've been in this season of life often, what do we assume? That when things are going well, that when I have it all together spiritually, surely in that moment, God is pleased with me. And yet it's at this point, helpfully, but it can be frustrating that the Bible steps in and reminds us of this great truth that there's no amount of effort we can put into our relationship with God to make us right with God. The holiest person that you know, the best person you know, the most moral person that you know cannot make themselves right with God by their good works. Paul reminds the people of this in Romans 3 verse 20 when he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul reminds the people, by the law, by our good deeds, by piling up religious activity, we'll never be justified. We'll never be innocent in the sight of God. We can't twist God's arm into loving us. We can't earn a relationship with God by our good deeds, making us lovable. And Paul goes on in Romans 3, such a critical chapter in the Bible to remind the people that this is the case because no amount of good deeds can ever outweigh the offense we have caused by rebelling against the creator of the universe. You could do good work after good work for hundreds of years, and it will never make up for humanity's decision to rebel against their creator and to push him to the side so that they could do what they wanted to do. And so left to ourselves, we find ourselves in this 
position, a a picture of a relationship with God where, as Hebrews reminds us in chapter 12, we should be fearful to some degree. We have sinned. We will face the judgment of God. We are separated from him. And so the obvious response of the human heart is, well, if I can't fix this by being good enough, how do I fix the problem? Have we just lost all hope? Is the Bible just one long message telling us that there's nothing we can do to make this right if we can't make it right on our own? And that's when the good news of the gospel comes in, the second part of Hebrews 12 that we just read, to remind us of this, that the good news of the gospel is that there is more than one way to get right with God than just trying to be good enough to get right with God. And that way we get right with God is not by trusting in our own words, but by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews 12, 22, the author of Hebrews makes this transition. He says, there's one way of approaching God where you approach God in fear because you're facing the prospect of judgment. But then look at what he describes in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to immeasurable angels in festal gathering. What the author of Hebrews lays out for us here is that there is a way of approaching God based on sin and law and judgment where we encounter God as judge, but there's also a way of approaching God as we read here in verse 22 where we encounter him no longer as judge, no longer as someone who is distant and to be feared, but as someone to be loved, as a father. And as we begin to read this description, the author of Hebrews says, there's a way where you used to stand far off from God, but now you're no longer far from God. Why? Because you can enter, he says here, and some of you already have entered the city of the living God and into a festal gathering. There's these two pictures that he paints in Hebrews 12. One, encountering God as you're encountering God in a courtroom as a judge, and one, encountering God as you're encountering him in the midst of a party. And that sounds like a much better approach to God. So the question is, what's changed? What gets someone from experiencing God as judge to experiencing God as the author describes here? He goes on to tell us, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Before we get to what changes someone's approach to God, I want to pause here for a second and just linger on these descriptions for a moment. Again, the author of Hebrews says there's a way of approaching God where you come to him not out of fear, but as a son or daughter of God as a firstborn of God. You come to him not with shame and guilt and uncertainty, but you approach God with the confidence that as he describes here, your name is written in a book in heaven and that God has already decided that you are his. You can come to God and become a part of this family that spans thousands of years that is made up of those who have loved God and died in the past and who love God and are living today. And as we think about these descriptions, as he piles up all of these good things when it comes to our relationship with God, can you imagine what it would feel like to begin to experience God in this way, to have confidence when you stand before God that you're right with him? 
to approach God, not out of shame and guilt, but out of this sense of love that you are a child of God and that he has accepted you and that he has received you. I still struggle with this, but there are so many moments, even as a believer, even as a pastor, even as someone who's been a Christian for 30 plus years, where I simply assume that God no longer wants anything to do with me because there's a sin I just can't overcome, or I keep making the same mistakes, or I can't make the changes that I know that God wants me to make. We hit on this a few minutes ago, but when your spiritual life is going well, it's easy to have confidence in your relationship with God. When your quiet times are consistent, when you're treating people well, when you're in church regularly, and when life is easy, when that's what life looks like, there's plenty of nights where my head can hit the pillow at night and I can have confidence that God is pleased with me because life is good. But what about the days you forget to read your Bible or you sleep in on a Sunday morning? Or you say something to someone you desperately wish you could take back, or the kids are hard, or marriage is hard, or you can't find someone to spend your life with. What does God feel towards you in those moments? Again, I think the the natural way that most people experience God is this, is that the Christian life is something like a spiritual roller coaster. And there's moments with God that are good, and then they're bad, and they're good, and they're bad. And there's this constant uncertainty that we feel that I think I'm good with God. I think God is pleased with me. But when I'm going through one of those valleys in life, which we'll all go through, if I happen to die in that moment, I don't quite know what would happen if I stood before God on that day. Again, what we just described, which I think all of us experience, doesn't sound like the experience of someone who believes, as the author of Hebrews writes here in Hebrews 12, that our names are written in the book of life. And the question we'll end with is this, is it possible that most of the frustration you you feel with the spiritual life, that the, the impulse you feel to kind of keep God at arm's length, is because just at the end of the day, you never quite know where you stood with God or where you stand with God right now. Think about how maddening this would be in every human relationship that you have. If you never knew how your spouse felt about you, if you were never quite sure how your kids felt or how your boss felt about the job that you were doing, or you never, you just never quite knew how the people closest to you felt about you, that would be a miserable way to live. And yet for many people, that's how they encounter God on a day-to-day basis. I think we're good. I think he's pleased with me, but it just keeps us off center constantly. And yet, the author of Hebrews 12 seems to have some kind of confidence. How can he know that he's right with God? It seems like a lot of his joy and peace and happiness comes from this realization that he has that he is good with God. He's been justified. He's been found innocent in the sight of God. And the obvious question every human heart is asking is, how can we have that confidence before God? And Paul, or the author of Hebrews finally gives us the answer in verse 24. When he simply says this, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Fear nothing else today. I hope that you hear this. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that regardless of who you are and what you've done and how you walked into this room this morning and how far from God you've been in the past, you can have a relationship with God. You can draw near to God today. 
Because at the end of the day, the good news of the gospel is that getting right with God isn't about cleaning ourselves up, isn't about getting our act together, isn't about being better than the average person around us or voting the right way or accomplishing enough things, but that at the end of the day, we are made right with God by coming to Jesus, by believing in him, by trusting in him, and by hanging on to this fact that I am right with God, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Because the reason Jesus came to this earth was to do what human beings could not do for themselves. There was no reason for him to come otherwise. And so Jesus comes to this earth 2,000 years ago, and he lives the perfect sinless life you and I could never live. And when we put our trust in Jesus, this amazing thing happens where that righteousness that Jesus earned, that perfect life that he lived, he gives us credit for that when we put our trust in Jesus, and then we can stand before God and have things said about us that don't make any sense, like you are saints, you are holy, and we know that's not true, but it is in the sight of God because of the life that Jesus lived that we could never live. That we can stand before God with our sins forgiven, not because we've done enough good things, but because in coming to this earth, Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die. And that while hanging on the cross, he wasn't just experiencing the physical pain of crucifixion, but that in that moment, that judgment of God that we read about in Ephesians 2, Jesus took on himself in our place as our substitute, that the judgment day that we should have had in the presence of a holy God, Jesus experiences in himself on the cross so that God doesn't merely overlook our sins, but makes sure that that debt is already paid pain. And so when we put our trust in Jesus and we see Jesus on the cross, we see what should have been us before God, but Jesus takes it on himself. And then by raising from the dead and giving us the promise of new life, he shows us that our existence does not end in the grave, that there is more to life than what we experience in the here and now. And that because of what Jesus has done, we can draw near to God. We can enter his presence and no longer stand far off because in Christ we have this confidence, not the confidence that we're worthy to stand before God, but the confidence that Jesus is. And if we're in him, we share in that confidence that he has. Again, when you stop basing your relationship with God on what's happening around you or what you've done, and you begin to find your confidence in what Jesus has done for you, it changes everything. We'll close with this, but the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, this is a little lengthy, I think it's a helpful illustration, frames this shift in this way when he writes, do you ever have a day that runs something like this? You get up in the morning, it's drizzly and hot and the air conditioner's broken. You reach for a clean pair of socks and you can't find two that match. You stub your toe on the nails sticking out of the wall you knew you should have fixed three years ago. You cut yourself shaving, you stumble down for breakfast, and that day your wife is going out for a meeting with her friends and there's nothing ready. You go to the car, you put your key in the ignition, it won't start, you knew you should have had the battery checked, you get to work late and the people around you are already talking about you. And then the boss asks, have you finished that report yet? You're staying late if you haven't tonight. And the whole day unfolds in one endless set of irritants. 
You have an opportunity to speak to some non-Christian friends, a neighbor, someone at the gas station, and you're already in such a bad mood that when they ask some question about religion, you answer with a kind of curtness and condescending wit that leaves them shriveled up in a pile of embarrassment. You feel guilty, but you've done it now. Eventually, you return home, and your wife has cooked this disgusting stew that your children like, but you hate. You try and be nice to her, but you can't. The kids aren't behaving well. Your wife wants you to get some stuff down around the house. You want to watch football, and this is the day that you experience. And finally, it's time for bed at the end of the day, and your prayer runs something like this. Dear God, this has been a rotten day. I'm not proud of myself. I'm ashamed. I don't really have anything to say. I'm sorry. I haven't done better. Forgive my sin. Bless everybody in the world. Your will be done. Amen. And you go to sleep. But then a few days later, you wake up and the air is refreshingly cool. The sun is shining. The windows are open. The fresh air is coming through the screen. You hear birds singing and then you smell something delightful, bacon coming from the kitchen. You get up and you reach for socks and you feel full of energy. Energy. You're whistling as you get ready. You put your key in the ignition and the car fires right up. You get to work early. Everybody commends you on your intelligence and the way you've been doing your job lately. Your boss says, wonderful to see you. Did I tell you you're getting a raise? And it's just the perfect day. Now you come across the same person at the gas station and wonder of wonders. They ask the same question and this time you respond with wisdom and tact and gentleness and they give their life to Jesus in the parking lot. You arrive home to a joyous dinner. The kids are behaving. You have an intimate conversation with your spouse. The two of you clean up the kitchen together before bed and finally at the end of the day you get down to pray and your prayer goes something like this, eternal and matchless God. We bow in your glorious presence with brokenness and gratitude. We bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace you have poured favor on us. We're not worthy of the least of your mercies. And you go on and on in flowery theological language and you thank God for all the things in the day and you pray for all the missionaries and their children and their cousins and you start praying for everyone you can think of and as you doze off to sleep, you meditate on the names of God in the Bible and you go to sleep surely justified right in the sight of God because of what you've done. And he poses the question, on which of these two days have you fallen into the trap of legalism? And he says, God help us, the sad reality is both approaches to God are an abomination. Do you not understand, he writes, that we overcome the accuser on the ground of the blood of Christ, nothing more and nothing less? This is how we win. It's the only way we win, he writes. This is the only ground of our acceptance before God. That is why we can never get far from the cross without distorting something fundamental, not only in doctrine, but in discipleship. That our faithful perseverance, our obedience, and our spiritual warfare are all fought through the cross and the blood of Christ alone. We overcome our accuser, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. We overcome our consciences. We overcome our bad tempers. We overcome our defeats and our lust and our fears and our pettiness on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. We dare approach a holy God praying in Jesus' name and appealing to Jesus' blood alone. If you are in Christ, then on your best day, your head can hit the pillow at night and you can know that you are right with God because Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself. 
And on your worst day, your head can hit the pillow at night and you can know that you are right with God because Jesus has done for you what you cannot do on your own. And the reason this is so significant, feeling this certainty in your relationship with God, is because a day is coming when something's going to happen and life's going to begin to spiral and your natural temptation is going to be to think or to believe that this is happening because God is upset with me. This is happening because God's not there. You're going to to lose a job. Finances are going to get tight. Something's going to happen to a kid. You're going to get a call from the doctor with a diagnosis you weren't expecting. And the assumption is going to be God is angry with me. But as we take the time to root our relationship with God in who Jesus and what he has done, then even when things spiral out of control, even when everything else falls apart in your life, you can know this. I am loved by God because of what Jesus has done for me, not because of what my circumstances tell me God believes about me. And it's the only thing that's going to allow us to persevere to the end. And because that work is done, And because that work is finished, again, everything else can fall apart. But I can know that even on those dark days, Jesus has me and he is holding me and I am righteous and I have hope for the future. And it's in that understanding of the gospel in our relationship with God where we find the joy and the love and the peace and the hope that the Bible promises us. There's nothing in life you'll find more valuable than that. I'm going to pray and we'll sing. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gospel, Jesus. We thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I pray as we leave the service this morning that we would feel that confidence, that we would know that joy, that we have been saved by you. And because we've been saved by you, we can rest in that fact. We can approach you, not out of guilt and shame and fear, because you know who we are, but you also know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. God, help us live in that love. Help us live in that peace. And I pray that for some who have kept God at a distance, that maybe as they come to a knowledge of what Jesus has done for them, they would know that you are not far off, that you are not hiding from them, but that you're ready to receive them and to welcome them back because Jesus has finished the work. Father, we love you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.